You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Uh, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through a study of Paul's letter to the Philippians here at Whitefields in our series titled, The Pursuit of Happiness. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at what God's Word says about the deep-seated happiness that we all desire and the only way to truly have it. Uh, one quick side note before we get into this, I wanted to mention that today is Refugee Sunday. For those of you who are on the city, the city, by the way, is our kind of internal social network where we share prayer requests and talk about, you know, different issues. Uh, as a church throughout the week, it's kind of a way for us to stay in community with each other uh, as the week goes on. But we were discussing this today, that today is Refugee Sunday, and it's such a kind of very, you know, hot topic politically right now. But we as a church, uh, we've been involved in refugee ministry for a long time. And, uh, you know, my wife and I, when we lived in Europe, we were very involved with it before it was big news over here. Um, But as a church, recently we have, uh, as you know, been collecting money to buy Persian language Bibles, Farsi language Bibles for Iranian refugees who are in Hungary. And we've been able to buy, uh, I'm forgetting how many now, 80, 90 Bibles. And when we handed these Bibles over to these people, um, I was there with with a man from our church here, Travis Herger. We were there earlier this year. We were handing these Bibles to these people, and they were saying that in their country, you know, they could be killed for having this. Like, it's something that they just don't have access to. And they're kind of expensive and hard to get anyway. So we as a church have been able to provide Bibles, and we've been... uh, Sharon on the city, how some of these refugees have been becoming Christians, been getting baptized. It's amazing. Lives changed. So we want to uh, pray for that ministry today and recognize that it is Refugee Sunday. So would you please, as we pray for our time in the Word, also let's pray for these refugees that we minister to as a church and refugees around the world. Lord Jesus, we remember that you were a displaced person yourself. You were a, a refugee, a Middle Eastern refugee yourself. And we, we keep that in mind as we reach out to refugees in your name around the world. We thank you that we as a church have been blessed with the resources to provide Bibles for these people who haven't had the opportunity to read your word before. And we thank you that by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, you are impacting lives and changing uh, futures and legacies and generations. And we thank you for that. Lord, we pray for uh, our partners in ministry over in Europe right now who are working with refugees week in and week out and sharing the gospel with them and, and providing them with needs. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them, provide all their resources, uh, encourage them in the work that they're doing. Lord, we do pray that these people who are leaving their homes for various reasons, Lord, we pray that uh, you would protect them and we pray that you would Also, let them hear the good news of Jesus Christ, especially as they come into free societies, maybe for the first time in their lives. So we do pray that you would do a good work through that. Thank you that we get to be a part of it. And we also pray now for our time in the Word, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your Word, which is living and active. We pray that it would speak to the very core of our being, and Lord, that you would do a good work in us by your Spirit as we study your Word. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, Lord, that much good fruit might be borne out in our lives as we take these things in and put them into practice. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, anxiety is a serious issue. Uh, In 
what is anxiety? Anxiety is that sense of worry. It's that sense of apprehension, that sense of fear and uncertainty, that feeling that things are not going well and they're probably going to go even worse. And anxiety is an extremely uh, prevalent thing in our society today. I read some statistics. One said that one in five Americans is taking an anti-anxiety medication of some kind. That's 20% of our population is taking an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. It is the number one category of prescription drugs in this country, a $50 billion industry. And what does that tell us? It tells us that anxiety is an issue which touches many people's lives Uh, especially here where we live in our society. And it seems that anxiety, if anything, is on the rise in our society, not on the decline. Uh, Just this past week, you probably read the news, you know that the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, which affected financial markets around the world, and so people are anxious about the economy. Here in our own country, we have an election coming up this year, and people are anxious about the future of the country. We're anxious about politics, we're anxious about violence, we're anxious about all kinds of other things which give us cause for anxiety. I I made a little list here of things which people tend to be anxious about. Uh, There's the past, the present, and the future, but aside from those three, we're fine, right? We, we got it covered. Um, we stress out about things that happened in the past, even though worrying about the past isn't going to change anything. We worry about things in the present, money, relationships, family, work, health, all kinds of things. And we get anxious about the future. We stress out about things that haven't even happened yet and may never even happen at all, but we stress out over them. The Center for Disease Control estimates that up to 90% of all doctor visits may be triggered in some way by stress-related illness. In other words, stress is super bad for your health. Like when you're stressed out, your body excretes certain things which are bad for your own body. So stress is really bad for you, but knowing that gives you one more thing to be stressed out about, doesn't it? Because if stress makes you sick, now you're stressed out about stressing out too much because if you stress out too much it's going to make you sick and then you'll be sick and thinking about that stresses you out because you're stressed out about the sickness that you might get by being stressed out right and that makes you sick and then you think about the bills and the time off work that you're going to need if you get sick and that stresses you out which makes you sick which makes you stressed and there's no end to it in fact talking about this is kind of stressing me out right now I'm not I'm not feeling so good But but here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's witnessing, uh, sorry, he's writing about what the gospel says about how the, uh, put it this way, how the gospel equips us to overcome anxiety. That's what he's writing about here. The title of today's message is Overcoming Anxiety. And if there was ever anyone who had a good reason for being anxious, for being stressed out, it was the Apostle Paul at the time when he wrote this letter. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in jail in Rome. He was in jail because of his faith, because he was preaching the gospel and starting churches, and people didn't like that. Not everybody liked it. And so currently he's arrested, and now it's been, he's been in jail for maybe three, four years at this point. He's awaiting trial before Caesar Nero, and this is kind of his final appeal hearing that he's waiting for. So whatever verdict Caesar Nero himself gives and renders, that's going to be the final verdict. It's going to be the final say, and it will be either you live or you die. So it's a very real possibility, as he writes this letter, that he's going to be put to death. 
He doesn't know what the future holds for him. He's in a complete holding pattern. He doesn't know if they're going to call his name for the trial tomorrow or if it's going to be two more years of just sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting with no idea when it will end or what's going to happen when it does end. And if that's not enough to make you anxious, if that's not enough to make you stressed out, I don't know what is. And in the meantime, he's locked in a room and he's under 24-hour surveillance. And the surveillance was that he was chained to a Roman guard at all times of the day. They would rotate out on six-hour shifts. He had no privacy whatsoever. If anyone had any reason for anxiety, it would have been Paul the Apostle as he writes this letter. But here in our text, Paul is telling us how when he understood the gospel, when he took hold of the promises of the gospel, he found in the gospel the key to overcoming anxiety. And as we look at this, uh, we too can take hold of these same promises in the gospel. So here's what we're going to be talking about in this section. First of all, we're going to talk about people problems. Secondly, we're going to talk about the perspectives which turn mountains into molehills. And thirdly, we're going to talk about how to have peace. So people problems, the perspectives that turn mountains into molehills, and how to have peace. First of all, let's talk about people problems. You know, one of the things that causes a lot of anxiety is people problems, conflicts with other people, maybe at work, maybe in your families, and uh, wherever it may be, there's one thing that you can be sure of, and that's this. Wherever there are people, there will be people problems. Wherever there are people, there will be people problems. And that means that even in church, even in your family, people problems will happen because families and churches are made up of people. And wherever there are people, there are people problems. You know, families are wonderful things. You know that. Churches are amazing places. People gathering together, seeking to know God, seeking to pursue God together, linking arms together to bring the love and hope of God to the world. It's a beautiful, it's a noble thing. Churches are amazing. Families are wonderful. But they both consist of people. And because they consist of people, even the best families, even the greatest churches, there will be people problems because wherever there are people, there are people problems. Because by our very nature, we are flawed even the best of us. And so Paul begins this section by saying this. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and who I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is how Paul thought about the Philippians. He called them my joy and my crown. And what he wanted more than anything for them is that they would stand firm in the Lord. I can relate to this very much. This is the heart of a pastor for the people that they pastor. I feel the same feelings towards this congregation too. But there's something else that Paul says in verse 2. He says, you're my joy and my crown. I want you to stand firm in the Lord. But there's this. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's he talking about? There were two women, Yodia and Syntyche. These are female names. These are two women in the church in Philippi. And what we can deduce from this is that these Ladies were not getting along with each other. Something had happened. There was some kind of tension between them. There was a conflict. 
And what's interesting, though, is that Paul refers to these women as fellow workers with me in the gospel. And what that means is that he says they labored side by side with me in the work of the gospel. These weren't just people who showed up at church every couple weeks sometimes, right? These were people who were plugged in. They were planted in the house, right? They were involved in ministry. They were part of the leadership of the church. And as a result of this conflict going on between these two ladies, it would seem that people in the church were divided over this conflict. People were probably taking sides, you know, some siding with Yodia and some siding with Syntyche. And, and you can imagine what that was doing to the church. Feelings were hurt. People were divided. And you can imagine how for a person like Paul, who had been their pastor at one time, who loved them, he loved them so much, it must have broken his heart to see this body fractured and divided, people angry and bitter towards each other. He hated to see this. He wanted to see these people who he loves, who he longs for, right? He wants to see them working together with one heart and one mind, pursuing God, serving God together. And so you read this and you you can't help but wonder, Well, what was the issue between these ladies? And the fact is, we don't know because we're not told. But the fact that we're not told actually tells us quite a bit. First of all, it tells us that this was not a theological issue. Because Paul was super fast to come down on theological issues and set things straight when people were messing with the gospel. And so it wasn't a theological issue. If it had been, he would have dealt with it. Rather, Paul, interestingly, he doesn't say, we need to figure out Who's right and who's wrong in this situation? We need to get down to the bottom of this situation. We need to find out which of these ladies is right and which of these ladies is wrong. He doesn't say that at all, which is very telling. Instead, he says, listen, whatever happened, it kind of doesn't matter. You guys need to work this out. You need to get along, okay? Because this conflict, it needs to stop. This isn't okay. It's hurting the church. It's distracting others from what God really wants you to be about, And rather than being focused on your mission uh, of taking the the gospel to the world, you're spending all your energy and all your resources quarreling and gossiping and fighting, and it's got to stop, and it's got to stop now. You know, what do you do when two people are in a deadlock like this, right? Like they both think that they're right and the other person's wrong. How do you break that kind of deadlock? The answer is this. That in every human relationship, in every, you know, dynamic, unity requires humility. Unity requires humility. That's true of all of our people problems. As long as both parties involved only care about being right, then then there will be no unity. Nothing will ever get solved. But do you realize that it's possible to be technically right and still be completely wrong? in your attitude towards the other person. You can be technically right and yet spiritually wrong. Literally, Paul says here, I urge Yodia and Syntyche, literally says, to have the same mind. I want them to have the same mind. And that takes us actually, same language used in chapter 2, where we read a couple weeks ago how Paul says that we should have the mind of Christ within us. And what is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is like Jesus who considered the needs of others above himself. It's Jesus laying down his life even though he had done nothing wrong in order to be reconciled to people who had actually sinned against him. And Paul's saying, Yodia and Syntyche, I don't care. It doesn't matter which of you is technically right. Right now, you're both wrong. This conflict is wrong, and I want you to have the mind of Christ. You need to be willing to humble yourself 
even if you don't feel like that you did anything wrong, because see, that's what Jesus did for you. See, that's what it means to live out the gospel. That's what it means to have gospel ethics. It means to be continuously aware of what Jesus did for you and to do the same to other people. Jesus initiated, didn't he? He was incarnational, which means that he came to us. He didn't wait for us to come to him. Jesus was humble. Jesus forgave. Jesus suffered for you even though he wasn't the one who had done anything wrong. Wherever there are people, there will be people problems. And it is possible to be technically right and yet spiritually wrong if you're unwilling to let go of bitterness and you're unwilling to show grace and mercy and forgiveness when you've been offended. See, unity requires humility. And so the question for us is, are you willing to have the mind of Christ? But you might say, well, wait a second. What if, what if that other person never changes? Like, what if they never realize that what they did was wrong? What if they never realize that it wasn't okay what they did? I need to make sure that they understand that I'm right and that they're wrong, and I'm going to do that by giving them the cold shoulder until they get the point. Well, let me tell you this. Holding on to bitterness against another person, it's like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. In the end, you're only hurting yourself. See, you don't have to wait for the other person to apologize to you before you can settle the matter in your own heart and you can forgive them. Because the fact is that in many cases, the other person's not ever going to apologize. You see, you can still choose to forgive even when you feel that you've been offended, even if you feel that you didn't do anything wrong. Because to do so, see, that requires humility. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. In his coming into the world, in his life, in his suffering and his death, it was the single greatest act of humility that the world has ever seen. And remember, he didn't actually do anything wrong. We did. And yet he humbled himself because of his great love for you. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to reconcile your broken relationship with God. So to have the mind of Christ is to follow that example in your dealings with other people. Wherever there are people, there will be people problems. And unity requires humility. It requires us to have the mind of Christ who even though he committed no sin, he took the penalty upon himself for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. And this brings us to our second point, which is related to the first, and that is this. The perspectives which turn mountains into molehills. You, you know the saying, right, that when you blow something out of proportion, when you make a bigger deal out of something than is really warranted, they say that you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Paul wants us to see, and he's going to talk about in these next few verses, how as Christians we have certain perspectives which if we take hold of them, they, they turn the things which we've made into mountains, turns them back into molehills, which they really are. And that's an important part of overcoming anxiety. Here's what these perspectives are that he mentions here. First of all, he says, be reasonable. Secondly, he says, there is a book of life. And thirdly, he says, the Lord is near. Let's read the text and then we'll look at those. I'm going to go back to verse 3. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who labored with me side by side in the gospel uh, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So the first thing that I want to talk about is he says, be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to all people. First thing here is this. Expectations are important. 
Expectations are important. They're like a filter through which we process things, right? So for example, if I were to take you into a room, but before I took you in the room, I told you, this room is a honeymoon suite. And then I take you in the room and you look around and you say, this place is a dump, right? Like, this is a honeymoon suite. What a dumpy place. But if before I took you into that exact same room, instead I told you, this room is actually a prison cell. And then I take you into the exact same room. You look around and you say, hey, you know, it's not actually that bad. In fact, it's kind of nice, right? And what changed? The room didn't change at all. All that changed was your expectation of what, would, what that room would be like. And many people have the wrong expectations about life. Many of us make the mistake of expecting life to be something that it's not or expecting the problems and conflicts which are inevitable in this life, we, we expect them not to happen. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we have three inherent enemies, three enemies. Those are the world, the world system, uh, the flesh, and the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. And each of these things is working to keep people away from God and away from the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil cannot take away the salvation that has been given to you as a free gift through Jesus Christ. But Jesus said in John chapter 10, in that famous part where he talks about how he is the good shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep, they know my voice. And he says, I give them eternal life, and I will not let anyone snatch them out of my hand. He says, I'm not going to let anyone snatch them out of my hand. So nothing can take you out of his hand. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they can't take you out of his hand. They aren't your friends, but they can't take away your salvation. But here's what they can do. They, they can and they will try to take you away from God, away from the gospel, and by doing so, to destroy your peace and your joy and to render you an ineffective mess. And you need to know that. You need to anticipate that. You need to have that expectation going in. Because if you do, then you won't be surprised when attacks do come. Instead, you'll anticipate them. And as you're anticipating them, you will premeditate your response to them when they do happen. Like a person who's going into a battleground, right? Like if you don't know that you're going into a battleground, you're just walking along, then, and you're not prepared for it. You're completely unequipped to deal with it. But if you're expecting the battle, then you prepare yourself for the battle with the proper attire and resources. And in that case, you're much more likely to win the battle. What this means is this. Conflicts are inevitable. In the world, problems, sorrows, pains, disappointments, they're inevitable. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, he said, for I have overcome this world. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus, by the way. That he has overcome this world. And that through him, we will get to take part in that victory. His victory, our redemption. But that doesn't change the fact that the first part's still true. That we will have tribulation. We will have trouble in this world. And we should expect it. That's a reasonable expectation. So don't be surprised by people problems. You should expect that they will happen. You, shall, you should anticipate and premeditate how you're going to react when they do happen. We live in a fallen world, so don't be surprised when things don't go the way that they should or even the way that you hope they would. You should expect it. We have enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, so we should have reasonable expectations about how these things work, and we should anticipate how we will react when they do happen. 
if you do that, when conflicts happen, when you get that bad diagnosis from the doctor, when you get the bad news about whatever it may be for you, you've already premeditated how you're going to respond to that situation. He says, be reasonable. Understand that you have enemies. Anticipate battles. Premeditate how you will respond if and when they happen. You know, I was thinking about this, and, and I remember a time in our lives when our daughter was born. She's now six years old. Uh, but when she was born, she was very sick, and she almost died. And the doctor sat me down and told me, you know, that our daughter might not recover. And he said uh, she may never breathe on her own. These are a few of the things they told us. They said that she would probably have severe neurological problems. And at very best, she would have cerebral palsy. And so my wife and I, we were, we were very grieved by that news. And we began preparing ourselves for this new reality that we were going to have to live in for the rest of our lives probably. But at the same time, there was a way in which uh, having studied God's word, we were in a way prepared, right? We, were, we had premeditated how we would respond if we were ever faced with something like that. And I remember my wife and I, we prayed together and we read uh, first chapter of Job, right? The story of Job in the Bible who suffered terrible loss and he grieved greatly, but it says at the end of the chapter, he grieved in sackcloth and ashes, but he never cursed the Lord in spite of everything that happened. And in fact, not only did he not curse God, but he blessed God. He worshiped even as he mourned. He worshiped in sackcloth and ashes. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says, you know, shall I accept good only from the Lord? Shall I not accept this also? And see, knowing these things, reading these things that had prepared us so that when, when something like that did happen, we had already kind of premeditated if something like that severity ever happens to us, how will we respond? You know, in the end, God did heal our daughter, and that's amazing, and that's totally for his glory. She's completely healthy. You would never know about the problems she had. But here's the thing. Because we had anticipated that in this world we will have tribulations and our hope is in Jesus and the redemption which is to come, we had premeditated how we would respond should something like that ever happen to us. And when it did, almost, uh, we were prepared with our response. You see, that's one of the reasons why studying God's word like this is so important. Because even if everything that you know, we read or talk about on any given Sunday doesn't apply to you right now, you're preparing yourself you're storing that away, right, in your mind. You're preparing yourself for a future day when it may apply to you directly. On this topic of expectations, one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs, um, yeah, Proverbs 14, verse 4. And it says this, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. Now you're saying, why is that your favorite proverb? Let me explain. It's super uh, interesting when you think about what he's saying. Where there's no oxen, the manger's clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. In other words, if you don't have any animals, and you don't have any costs, right? You don't have to pay any money to feed them. There's no investment necessary. Uh, also, you never have to clean up after them, right? So you've got clean stalls. You never have to clean up their messes. Uh, there, there won't be any smell. Everything will be perfectly clean and sterile but the problem is that nothing of significance will ever happen. In other words, it's a trade-off. What it means is this. If you never do anything, then you'll never make any mistakes. Congratulations. 
perfectly sterile life. You'll never have to invest anything. You'll never have to give anything. You'll never have to clean up any messes. You'll never have any stinky situations. If you want your life to be completely sterile, then here's what you need to do. Don't do anything. Isolate yourself. Keep your relationships with people completely shallow. Never take any risks at all. Because if you never try anything, then you'll never make any mistakes. But nothing of significance will ever happen. You see, if you're always moving from place to place, one place to the next, one thing to the next, if you're never putting down deep roots anywhere uh, so that you never get hurt, you'll never get disappointed, you'll never fail, you'll never have any stinky situations to clean up, so you'll never be offended. And if you are offended, well then, you don't have to work through the problem. You'll just take your ball and go home. And that's all, right? And if you do that, you'll never have to deal with any messes. But the trade-off is this, you'll never grow. Nothing will ever change. You'll never change in the ways that God wants you to change. See, expectations are important. In this world, you will have tribulations. There will be problems. There will be disappointments. There will be pain and sorrows. There will be people problems. There will be stinky situations. If you do anything, if you take any risks, there will be costs. There will be the opportunity that you might mess up. Anticipate those things, and here's the other thing, premeditate how you will respond when those things happen in accordance with the mind of Christ. The second perspective that turns mountains back into molehills, the second and third are related. The first, uh, second one is this, there is a book of life. He says in verse 3, I want you to remember that these people who are not getting along, these are people whose names are written in the book of life. What is the book of life? Well, it's a book that has names in it. We read about it here, and we read about it in Revelation, and we read about it in the Gospel of Luke. This is a book that contains a record of those who have put their faith in the gospel and who are being saved. And on the last day, Jesus with nail-scarred hands will scan that book and read those names and whoever's name is in the book will be saved and whoever's name is not, I'm sorry, not in the book, they will not be saved. It speaks of our eternal destination, where you will go at the end of this life for eternity. And as Christians, this is a perspective that we need to live with all the time. That eternity is a long time, and for those who are, whose names are written in the book of life, heaven awaits us. So rather than being anxious, let us be people who trust in Jesus. Let us be hopeful, knowing that our names are written in the book of life. Nothing that can happen to me in this life can ever erase my name from the book of life. But here's the other part. We can't just be satisfied with the fact that our names are written in the book of life. We must spend our lives on a mission to do what we can to see more names added to that book of life. And here's why. This is our third point. Because the Lord is near. He says in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Time is short. Here's the thing. You don't know how many days you've got left. And let this perspective shape your mindset as you live. Time is short. The Lord is near. Press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize, the goal, the finish line. When you keep that perspective, it turns mountains back into molehills. It causes you to see the big picture. Not only the big picture of this life, but the big picture of eternity. It's a lens with which you live, and if you do, it causes you to live with wisdom. Uh, David says in Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom. See, looking at each day with, with two perspectives. Number one, that this might be your last day, 
Or it might be that person that you know you got the issue with. It might be their last day. Live with that perspective. And secondly, live with the perspective that the things you are anxious about today may actually be molehills and not mountains in the big picture of eternity. If you look at each day with those perspectives, it will cause you to walk wisely. But here's the thing that we must say, right? That not all the problems that we deal with are just overgrown molehills, right? Some problems actually appear to be mountains because they really are a big thing. They really are a big deal. They really are something to be anxious about, something to be genuinely worried about. See, we live in a world that is full of groaning as we await redemption. And there are things in this world which are genuinely big problems. They're not just all overgrown molehills. And this brings us to our final point, and the point which really is the, the main point of what Paul is saying here in this section, and that is this, how to have peace. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. For a Christian, peace and joy come from the same place. They both come from the assurance that we have of our salvation. The assurance that we have of our salvation is the source of our peace and it's the source of our joy because of what Jesus did for us. We have assurance of salvation. And that's why, see, our discussion of how to have peace is tied to our same discussion which we've been talking about throughout this book of the source of true joy, which is the gospel message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. And that's why the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is not sadness because throughout the Bible we're told repeatedly that you can have joy even when you feel sad and even when your circumstances are bad. So what is joy? One writer put it this way. I thought this was very good. He said, joy is a spiritual buoyancy which comes from focusing on the unchanging privileges which we have in Christ. Joy is a spiritual buoyancy which comes from focusing on the unchanging privileges we have in Christ. See, what is buoyancy? Buoyancy means that you don't sink, right? It means that you're unsinkable, that you might get pushed down, but you're not going to stay down. You're not going to sink. This kind of joy comes when you are able to say, I have got the one thing, the only thing which really matters. I've got the only thing which really matters. No, no matter what else happens to me in this life, I've got the one thing that really matters and no one can ever take it away from me. My name is written in the book of life. The Lord is near. And therefore, no matter what happens, I've got the only thing which matters. I am unsinkable. I've got a deep-rooted sense of joy which nothing and no one can ever take away from me. No matter how bad my circumstances may ever get, I may be down, but I won't be out because I've got the one thing that really matters. In Psalm 4, David says this. He says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when the grain and wine abound. You've put more joy in my heart, Lord, than when they have grain and wine that abound. What he's saying is, some people are only happy when business is going well and everything in life is going great. But he says, not me. I have joy all the time. Not just when I have blessings, because, see, I find my joy not in the blessing, but in the blesser. I find my joy not in the blessing, but in the blesser. They find their joy in the blessing, in the, in the material thing. I find my joy in the blesser. And that's why I have joy even when things aren't going well, you know, materially. I have joy all the time. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a, a small book. It's called Letters to Malcolm. It's really just a collection of letters that he wrote to a friend named Malcolm. And he says this interesting phrase there. He says that a, a, a thinking person 
will follow the sunbeam to the sun. In other words, they won't just remain with the sunbeam. They know the source of the sunbeam, which is the sun. They, it says they will let their, a uh, thinking person will let their mind run up the sunbeam to the sun. And in the same way, we should do the same thing with God. Don't just enjoy the blessing, but let your mind run up the blessing to the blesser. When you experience some kind of joy, some kind of blessing, you don't stop there. You let your enjoyment of that thing lead you to consider the source of that blessing, which is God, the blesser. So you can be like David and you can say, my joy comes not from the blessing itself, but my joy comes from the blesser. When I experience blessing, I don't just rejoice in the blessing, but I let my mind run up the blessing to the blesser and I rejoice in him. So peace and joy come from the same place, from the assurance of salvation which God has given us in Jesus Christ. Joy is the buoyancy which comes from focusing on the unchanging privileges we have in God. So what is peace? Peace is confidence and trust in God's wise control of your life. Confidence and trust in God's wise control of your life. The opposite of peace is worry and anxiety. Peace has to do with confidence in God's control of your life. If you truly have confidence that God loves you, that he's really in control of your life, then no matter what happens, you will have peace. That's why Paul says this famous uh, two verses here, starting in verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The key to understanding this verse is this. Make your requests with thanksgiving. Turn your cares into prayers, your supplication, right, which is passionate requests, beseeching, right? But do it all with thanksgiving. And maybe you'd say, well, wait a second. How can you be thankful for something that you haven't received yet? How can you be thankful when you're just making the request for the thing? But see, that's the key. That's the key to this piece that Paul is talking about. You see, when you're thanking God as you make the request, you're essentially saying, God, I trust in you, that you're a God who loves me, you're a God who will do the best for me, and if you grant this request, thank you. On the other hand, if, if what I'm asking for right now is something that you know isn't the right thing for me, and I just don't see it, or, or it's not the right time, or you're going to do something else instead, well, then I thank you for that too. Because I know that you love me, I know that you see the big picture that I don't see, and I know that you know that even if it's hard, uh, I know that you're going to do what's best for me because you love me. And so you thank him, even as you're making the request. I make my request, my petition, but I know that you're a good God who knows perfectly well what you're doing, and I thank you for your good ordering of my life. And he says, if you do that, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And no matter what happens, you will have the peace of God reigning in your heart because you have confidence and trust in God's wise control of your life. And finally, Paul says this in closing. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you want to have the peace of God in order to overcome anxiety, then here's what you need to do. Don't listen to your heart, but speak to your heart. 
It's kind of this cliche, cliche kind of platitude that people always say, right? You know, just listen to your heart. Do whatever your heart tells you to do. That's actually, the Bible would say that's super bad advice. Like, don't do that. Like, whatever you do, don't do that. Here's an example. Uh, in Psalm 42, David is feeling cast down. He's feeling depressed. He's anxious. He's worried. And here's what he says. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Again, I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. See, instead of listening to his heart, which is full of worry and full of angst, instead of listening to his heart, he's speaking to his heart. He's talking to his heart. He's saying, don't forget the God who loves you. Don't forget what God has done for you. You see, peace comes not from listening to your heart, but from talking to your heart. And not just talking in general, but peace comes from talking to your heart about who you are in Christ. The way to overcome anxiety, the way to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil is to be constantly reminded of the gospel. And that's why every Sunday we gather here, we study God's word, we worship, and we are reminded of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And I I want you to go from here, and as you go about your week, I want you to know it's important that you continue to tell yourself the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to your own heart, who you were apart from Christ and who you have become in Christ. The message of the gospel is that you and me, we were lost. We were dead in our sins. We were on the fast track to eternity apart from God and eternal condemnation. We were more lost, more broken, more sinful than we even realize. But God in Christ initiated in our situation. He intervened in order to save you, which means that you are more loved by him than you can ever even imagine. And that truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, if you take hold of that, if your heart really gets a hold of it, it is to you an endless source of joy and peace. It is a spiritual buoyancy that makes you unsinkable no matter what life throws at you. It's a confident trust in God's wise control of your life. So be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this source of our peace, this source of our joy, which comes from the unchanging facts of who we are in you. We thank you for the gospel, Lord, and we know that... uh, Those of us who have put our faith in the gospel, our names are written in the book of life. We also know that there's a lot of people in this world whose names are not written in the book of life. People who have not given their life over to you, who have not asked you to be their savior and their Lord, who have not responded to you in faith because of what you've done for them on the cross. And so I pray for anybody amongst us today who might say as they hear these things, you know, I'm not sure that my name is written in the book of life. And if that's true, that the Lord is near, if our days are numbered, I want to be sure of that. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who would say that. And I ask that they wouldn't leave this place today without having done business with you in their heart and said, Lord, yes, thank you for what you did for me. I receive it, I believe it, and I ask you to be Lord of my life. Thank you that you lived and you died for me, and I want to live for you. 
Lord, we pray that that would be where we're all at in our hearts and that we would truly have the peace uh, which surpasses all understanding and that the peace of God would reign in our hearts and that we would know that spiritual buoyancy that comes from these unchanging truths of who we are in Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. We pray that you'd help us as we go now to continue to preach the gospel to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Thank you.